Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this episode is part of our World in 30 Minutes mini-series on the end of the world. This is the place where we talk about how the global order, which has defined the world for the last few decades, is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reinvented as something else. And today, we're very happy to talk about the future of the internet with Vincenzo Iozzo, who is a research associate at the MIT Media Lab and is also a founder and CEO of a cybersecurity company called Iperlane, but is a serial entrepreneur in this area. And uh, joining me to talk to Vincenzo is Jeremy Shapiro, who's research director at the European Council on Foreign Relations. So, Vincenzo, before we get into the international order, can you just tell our listeners a bit more about yourself? How, how did you get into your into the, the cyber world? Yeah, hi, Mark. Um, I got into cyber world as a kid. I guess it's a, the stereotype. Um, so I started to do, I guess, what people call hacking back in the days. And uh, then it sort of like became a job as the industry grew. Um, and I always focused on something that people call application security, which is uh, when people talk about malware uh, or like a nation state threats. Um, it's the analysis of uh, that kind of software. Um, and I've sp- specifically focused for a long time on uh, mobile devices. Um, so I co-authored a book on iOS uh, hacking and helped um, the World Economic Forum on some work that they did on cybersecurity as well. So what, because hackers, when you, were, when you were hacking into things, what were the most high-profile things that you managed to hack into? Can you talk about that or you go to prison? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> My lawyer would not be happy. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's, to a large extent, um, it's, the, it's more the sort of like the analysis of the systems uh, themselves. And, and then, of course, you can use that to actually hack into things. But uh, the part that was fun for me has always been sort of like analyzing the systems and figuring out um, if there are any vulnerabilities or, um, and if so, how to, how to use them or, and how to fix them. Okay, so the internet is a system of systems. Um, if you look at that as a hacker uh, from the outside, I mean, how? What do you think the biggest vulnerabilities of of the internet are as a as a as a system? So um, it's interesting because when you think about the internet, it has been built uh, to be um, fairly resilient to random faults, but uh, highly unsecure against uh, sort of like targeted attacks. So, and this goes to the very sort of like um, basis of the internet the main routing protocol that is used to sort of like send things around uh, is um, fundamentally based on trust Uh, and so we've seen cases where uh, certain countries have um, decided to pretend to be somebody else so we've seen cases where um, china or russia have pretended to be google Um, and this is an interesting uh, this is i think it's a very interesting um, case of 
um, sort of like building a very complex system with a completely different set of incentives in mind. And now um, I think one of the things we're realizing uh, is that because security was not built in the internet, um, a lot of um, people at the policy level are um, questioning whether the internet is a safe place to be and whether we should have uh, separate uh, networks that are sort of like safer to deal with. Um, and there's been a lot of chat about that in multiple countries, the US, uh, the, um, I guess the EU, um, Russia, and I guess China technically has a separate internet through, through their uh, great firewall. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it, and the other thing about the internet is that it's a very uh, complicated, uh, even from just a governance standpoint, it's so complicated that it's uh, it's really hard to pin down a set of like authorities that you can talk to, um, to figure out when something goes wrong, what to do about it. Because I was in Stanford recently and, and spoke to uh, one of the cyber experts there and he said that we might be approaching the period where the financial costs of um, cyber insecurity um, are going to be larger than the productivity benefits that we get from the internet. I find that to be a questionable statement. Um, I think, so to a large extent, one of the problems that we actually have is that it's really hard to put a price on the cost of uh, cyber incidents. Um, and we've, we're seeing a lot of this through cyber insurance, actually. So there is this new field, well, sort of new. Uh, people have been talking about this for about 20 years, but they still haven't figured out a good solution. And one of the problems there is to uh, how to actually um, figure out what is the value at risk. Um, so a lot of the um, calculations there are um, not strictly scientific, I would say. That being said, um, I do agree that... Um, the internet, we're getting to the point where uh, we have a huge divide in terms of uh, what, like in terms of security. So there, the vast majority of the internet is extremely insecure. And then we're seeing um, a few cases of companies or governments that have really stepped up their game and have built very secure, um, very secure systems or devices. And Apple, for instance, or even Microsoft, they're both good examples. Like their latest software, is really secure, but then um, you have all the legacy problem. And, and so a lot of the stuff that is actually on the internet right now is really insecure, not because we don't know how to fix it, but because there is a massive cost involved in actually upgrading everything, um, which by the way, was the source of the problem with the WannaCry uh, attack recently. Do you, do you think that this, when, when you say something like that, it, it sort of uh, cries out for a regulation, which is probably not what you meant. Um, but do you think that there there is a an ability to uh, for for governments to make this uh, that level of security uh, mandatory that they can push that through the system, or contrarywise is the reason uh, and maybe asking the question from a slightly different perspective is the reason that Apple and Microsoft's um, products are more secure is that is that a result of a regulatory push or market push? Um, I think so. Let me unpack your question in two parts. So on one end, uh, I think that I was actually calling for regulation um, in two different ways. One way is uh, regulation at the uh, software vendor le levels, uh, where um, we shouldn't be relying on basically good faith on their part 
to avoid like massive uh, tragedies in terms of um, vulnerabilities in, in their code bases. So I'm one of the those people that actually think that having some kind of regulation around software liability would be a good idea at this point. Um, of course, we need to be careful because you don't want to stifle innovation and all of that. But I think it's a topic that should be uh, should be talked about more. Um, and then the second part to this is uh, regulation in terms of uh, like industry and network security. Um, and so historically, regulation in that sense has not helped. Uh, much. Um, so, for instance, if you take HIPAA in the US, which is supposed to uh, regulate uh, the medical sector, what you see is that um, it's it's done anything but help in terms of security. Um, on they make me fill out a lot of forms, but that <laughs> yeah, basically putting in private information so that they don't share my private information. <laughs> yeah, and also, I mean, it's 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 interesting how basically for big companies. Uh, they are in, in the sector. They are compliant uh, with IPUB, but uh, that means that they are using outdated systems that are certified and so on and so forth. So in a sense, uh, the regulation is forcing them to be insecure. Right. And then you have uh, the smaller players, uh, which could be, I don't know, my dentist, and they don't have the resources to actually be compliant with IPUB, so they do even worse. And so like regulation there uh, is a bit of a tricky uh, it's a bit of a tricky topic what seems to be working actually in that in that sense is market pressure so it like there have been a couple of studies that have shown how security has improved for uh, contractors of either defense companies or the financial sector uh, because the big banks and the government are now basically asking uh, their contractors to respect a certain set of um, like standards in order to do business with them. So it might be that we need regulation at the software level and we might need um, a market push at uh, the sort of sort of like basic infrastructure network level. But that would be a sort of government-inspired market push because the government would have to set the standards and would have to decide what the, what the, what the level is that people need to aspire to. Um, I think um, having one level of indirection might actually be the better way of, do, of going about it because uh, the, the reason why it works well in the financial sector is because be the financial sector cares about security because of government um, sort of like in, in, uh, regulation, but uh, what that translates to in terms of their vendors is actually set by uh, like the bank employees, and right. so it's not just a set of abstract rules that you need to, uh, to adhere to. So this leads to the sort of follow-on question, which is the sort of liberal or the, the, the order question, which is, okay, great, we need that regulation. Who who does that? Is that a is that a is that something that national governments can do in this interconnected world, or is that something that needs to be done through some sort of international consortium? So, yeah, that's 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 a tricky uh, that's a tricky question on two levels. Uh, one level is uh, pace of change, uh, which again, HIPAA is a good example, right? Uh, it the it, things don't move fast enough. Uh, on the regulatory side to be able to catch up with what is actually problematic from a technical standpoint. And in terms of governance, like who should have the right to uh, write such, uh, such a piece of regulation? Um, I think that's a really hard question. Like, um, 
I would intuitively, I would think that you want to have some um, body that it's made up of multiple uh, like nation states. Um, mostly, not just, not not because it would necessarily create a better standard, but because it would create an agreed upon standard, uh, which would help with um, sort of like freedom on the internet. Um, but I've heard arguments both directions, and normally the the trump card that the people use is uh, that. For national security reasons, uh, this sort of stuff should be dealt with at the national level, um, which to a large extent I don't think is true, because the same software that is used in one country is used in pretty much everywhere else in the world. So you, it, it's a weak argument to make, in my opinion. So I think there are two things which um, I was sort of wondering around when you were talking. One is there are like endless debates about open versus closed internets and um, you know, people tend to look at some of the more authoritarian countries like China and Russia and Saudi Arabia and other countries that want to have degree of control of their internets, not just to prevent cyber crime and the sorts of things which worry the companies that you were talking about, but because obviously this is the main uh, public space now. And uh, that's where people mobilize, where people discuss different things. And a key bit of having control of your country and having sovereignty is having control of the Internet. So that uh, therefore means that countries that are less comfortable with, with open societies want an Internet that reflects that. But at the same time, there is this question about whether we have one Internet or lots of Internets, which you were sort of implying earlier in China is obviously the, the example par excellence of a country that's big enough to have its own internet, its own companies. And how, how do those two sets of things kind of intersect with each other? And, and what's your assumption about how uh, this is going to evolve in the future? So to a large extent, I think there is currently a natural division of the internet that it's based on uh, languages. Like you can easily argue that there is one part of the internet that it's mostly um, like English spoken English, then there is, uh, sorry, uh, in content. There's another part that it's uh, roughly like Russian dominated and then there is a part that is Chinese dominated. And you can argue that even without the Great Firewall and other like censorship measures, those, that divide would still stay in terms of content. Um, one, like the, the question there is, should the internet have, like basically mimic the same um, like government structure that the country has? And my argument there would be that uh, that would be a bad idea. I mean, I can see, I can see how countries would want that to be true, but at the same time, one of the uh, I think one of the main selling points of the internet is that it's this world that it's outside of the national borders in all, like in all, in every possible dimension, and I think that losing that uh, would actually reduce a lot, um, inter like the the usefulness of the internet for everyone. Um, so, but that that being said, I do see more and more the political. Um, need or the political will to try to uh, somehow split the internet in different, um, in sort of like different subnets, if we can call them that. One Lots of, the, of people talk about the splinternet. 
yeah. Okay. I mean, what, one of the concerning parts, uh, for instance, um, is um, what some people in Europe are thinking, whereby the idea is that if we add our internet, like our European internet, uh, then uh, that would foster uh, competitive, like it would create a tech market in Europe. Yeah. National champions even. Yeah. yeah. Um, and- I think they because there are two bits of that. There is a sort of, there was a post Snowden thing about do we want um, to have control of our own data and to stop the US from spying on everything. And then there is also a sort of China inspired uh, commercial point. I mean, I, I spoken to that's also american inspired too more american inspired maybe than china inspired yeah but there is i mean i i i I've got a friend who's a very successful tech uh person who worked for one of the biggest american companies in the world for a long time and he says that europeans are doomed just to be wage slaves because you can't there's no market that's big enough to 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 get to that sort of scale so you get to a certain scale and then you get bought up by one of the the big ones and and that's your only option so either you get bought up or you just go to america and you build american companies yeah yeah, but 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 i think so i mean i think that is a bit of a catch-22 problem in the sense that until um, you close the market to american companies well well so (laughs) so so i i think the issue there is that the financial sector in europe at every stage um, of basically the life of a tech company is just not there. And that has very little to do with whether uh, we need a closed or open internet in Europe in order to foster innovation. Because the problem really here is not the fact that um, if you start a company say in the UK or in France, the problem is not that somebody will come to you, like a VC will come to you and say, oh, but your market is too small. The problem is that you will not find a VC in Europe who's willing to give you money. So then you need to move to the US. And at that point, once you are in the US, you keep going there. Um, So I think, if anything, uh, what we should be doing at the European level is market intervention, meaning on the financial side of things. Um, The other argument I've heard uh, about that is, well, in order to be competitive in the future, you need to sort of like be good at AI or machine learning. And the way to do that is you need to have a lot of data. So that, that is sort of like the other argument for uh, having like a closed internet so that you can have your own data. Uh, but when you talk to like very good practitioners in AI or machine learning, what they will tell you is that yes, data is important, but up to a certain point. After that, it just, it basically boils down to like how good are you at writing um, machine learning algorithms. Um, And so even the argument where you need it for competitive uh, reasons, I think is a bit weak. So what about the open versus closed question though? Do you think it's that it's possible to have an open internet, um, which is a single global internet, or is the only way of having an open internet to have internets for open societies? Well, so wishful thinking here says that it will be possible to have an open internet, but I don't think uh, that will stay this way for a very long time. I think that uh, governments everywhere are waking up to the importance of the internet, and uh, as such, they will um, eventually start to regulate it at some level or the other. It might not be uh, the way China does it. It might be some other way of doing it. I mean, you can argue that, for instance, the right to be forgotten in Europe is a way to regulate the Internet because you're sort of like changing 
the way they think, like the way European um, experience the internet. So what we might see is a different level of regulation, and I definitely expect that to happen everywhere. So the internet as we knew it 10 years ago, that was completely unfiltered everywhere, is definitely going to go away. Um, and I guess that is also a sign of the fact that the internet has become so important that governments cannot really um, ignore ignore it or its existence. It's become too important to su to uh, succeed, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that's fair enough. Let me ask you about one particular aspect in which in in which governments may uh, intervene in the future. Already talking about intervening, and that's the the question of. Um, of cryptography for communications, which is to me really fascinating, and it's it's a really fascinating example, and I think it really sort of crystallizes this privacy versus security versus regulation issue. Um, and I mean, you, you're, you, I think I'm sure you're familiar with the basic contours of the issue, which is essentially that the the technology is pushing ahead with readily available cryptographic communications, which is essentially, for all practical purposes, unbreakable by anybody if correctly implemented. <laughs> And those are being implemented by companies like WhatsApp uh, in a way which basically means, and, and by Apple, which basically means that the government is simply not going to have access to those kinds of communications unless they build in some sort of backdoor. So I'm interested in both, from both a sort of technical and a policy perspective, do you think it's either possible or desirable to build in a backdoor? And what are the issues that we should be looking for in that? So let me start with the technical angle first, because um, that makes the policy question, I think, uh, it frames the policy question in a better way. So from a technical standpoint, um, it is basically impossible to build a backdoor uh, such that it will never be misused by somebody. So at that point, what it boils down to is the moment you have a backdoor, you can assume to a large extent that your communication is not private at all and I don't understand that leap I have to uh, I, I understand the notion that if you if you build a back door it can be it can be it almost certainly will be abused but why does that mean that you will always assume that your um, your your privacy is compromised necessarily I mean I have a back door in my house and it's vulnerable but I don't doesn't mean I assume that there's a robber there every time I go home so um so, so on that point, um, you're right in the sense. So, um, I like. I guess the answer I gave you is uh, sort of like the technical, uh, almost absolutist way of looking at this, uh, which is because there is a possibility that things will be compromised, then it will assume that they are compromised, um, which is and it's, <laughs> which I know it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but this is normally the way people in tech think about threat models, uh, where you're saying, "Well, if this is one one of the avenues, then I cannot." There's nothing trust in it. the in the history of the products that the tech industry has given me over the years that implies that they were using that model. <laughs> well, in theory, they are. <laughs> okay. But, but um, so so you're right in the sense that uh, the fact that it could be misused and is there does not uh, necessarily guarantee that it will and that everyone will be a victim, a victim of that. One of the arguments there, um, which is a fairly sound argument, is the idea that because um, 
keeping some some any type of infrastructure is, uh, secure is really hard then we would not be able to know who's misusing what um, and so we might put ourselves in a position where we think that there is oversight over who has access to uh, this backdoor but we might never know and in a sense what we've seen through the snowden leaks is that uh, because this the internet is so complex uh, it's really hard to know okay this nation state has access to this infrastructure which means that they might have access to the keys and so on and so forth and all in like in practical terms all the networks that we've seen uh, where there is some kind of implicit level of trust uh, have all been violated in one way or, or the other there is um, the public key cryptography um, system that we use today which is basically what allows your browser to know whether a given the connection to a given website is safe or not um, has been compromised multiple times um, for even just for commercial reasons basically what happened was somebody bribed people inside um, certificate authorities to obtain fake certificates for other websites so um, while it is true that there is no um, like logical connection between or, or rather it's not a given that if there is a backdoor it will be misused what we've observed in practice is that uh, all systems that have some kind of built-in vulnerability of any kind will be exploited in ways that we don't really know um, about so if we assume that to be the case then the policy question becomes do we really need to break encryption in order to achieve the uh, public safety goals that we have and i would argue that to a large extent we don't because we have enough uh, metadata and information about people to be able to tell uh, what they are up to um, having access to potentially the content of everything i'm not sure helps much um so that that to me is so from the metadata you know what i'm gonna say regardless of whether you know whether i said it and to who you're going to talk to right um so that's almost more frightening but i think i take your point yeah yeah so i think i don't know i think uh in a sense what we're seeing is uh, a almost irrational fear uh on the parts of politicians um, to have access to communications as if that changed anything. Um, and we've seen this in the London attack uh, the other day. The call for um, like less cryptography wouldn't have helped at all in that case. Because we're talking about a random person renting a white van and no amount of crypto or non-crypto will fix that. Okay, so if we basically try and take a, a step back behind all of these different things you know we started out talking about the liberal order we talked a bit about some of the questions of order and who decides what the order is and who polices it and it's all pretty complicated but if you think about the the internet as a system what do you think the main component if there is a liberal order for the internet what are the main pillars of it well so i think there are there are a few organizations and then um, 
that, that are really important to uh, the liberal order of the internet. One of them is ICANN, which is the organization that basically assigns domain names. Um, ICANN, in a way, has managed to um, be fairly outside of the control of any one given government. And it's um, it's in it's a very good example of uh, proper governance of like a shared uh, a shared good. Um, so I definitely think that um, ICANN and um, like similar organizations are one of the pillars of the liberal internet. One part of the liberal internet that is important and it's not well captured is um, this underlying set of. Um, tech people that talk to each other and fix problems, uh, which we see uh, constantly. Like we see when uh, something like WannaCry happens, uh, but we also see when, um, say, Russia decides that they're going to claim to be Google. Uh, because what happens is that uh, tech pr practitioners that have like their own networks uh, around countries, they just start talking to each other. And to a large extent, they fix uh, the problems without any kind of like structure uh, so you have like mailing list of basically tech people that just talk to each other um, and I think that is another important pillar that it's basically the underlying plumbing work that goes on on the internet which as of today is very open like it's not nationally bounded um, and then the third part is uh, content, uh, both the ability to access content and also the ability to publish content. And that is the part where pretty much everyone is actually trying to uh, establish like some kind of regulatory framework on because it's also the most visible one. Like nobody, nobody really talks about, oh, people are sharing malware samples or like are sharing informations about, information about like different, um, BGP routes, which are basically the um, routes that are used to know where Google is. Uh, what people talk about is the content of communications. Uh, so I think that's the third pillar, um, which is basically the pillar that gives this uh, liberal uh, access to everyone. Um, but I think the other two was, are just as important. And in a sense, my hope there is that um, because they are so unstructured, uh, they will be harder to uh, regulate as opposed to um, the third one, which is these days somewhat easy to deal with. And do you think that the liberal is collapsing then? Um, I think that uh, the law of unintended consequences is forcing, uh, like it's take, it, it's taking its toll on the um, liberal order. Um, a good example of this that we talked about in the past is uh, the Vassanar Agreement, where, for instance, something like um, WannaCry would be a very tricky incident to solve if um, the Vassanar Agreement was in full force, because people wouldn't be able to share information as easily. Um, and so we have a set of um, policy proposals that um, have good intentions, but have um, very hard to predict um, consequences, uh, unintended consequences that, that that will eventually lead to um, the crumbling of the liberal internet as we know. Maybe one last question is what, if you think about European governments and European institutions, what do you think they can do to uphold a principled, open, um, rules-based internet if, if they, if they um, 
put their act together and if you were king for a day like a pan-european king what would you do well i think to, to be honest i think that the vast majority of europe doesn't really have a good grip on the internet um at the policy level i think what happens is it, it's sort of like a vicious cycle where because the internet champions are not in europe uh, then you don't have the same level of sophistication that you might have uh, you might have in the US. So I think part of that part of the problem there is to try to figure out how to better inform policymakers on the technical side. Um, and then I do think that in terms of um, ideology and what normally Europe stands for, Europe would be a um, good candidate to protect the liberal order of the internet. I just think that, we don't have the expertise to do that yet. Um, how to go about fixing it? Um, I think that's harder. Um, to a large extent, we would need to let go of the idea that anything that has to do with the internet at some point becomes national security because that prevents any talk uh, to happen in Brussels and then it ends up being at the national level. Um, so th I think that would be step number one. And step number two, uh, to try to have more, like a less confrontational engagement with the industry, uh, both whether the industry is in Europe or the US, which we're not really doing, because when, when you talk to politicians in Europe and you mention Google or Facebook, uh, all they think about is tax evasion, uh, which is a bit besides the, beside the point here. Unless you're trying to collect taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, thank you very much, Vincenzo. That's it's been fascinating talking to you, and um, you've laid out a kind of very, very clear set of principles and uh, complicated um, parts of, a, of this enormous jigsaw puzzle in a in a way that I could understand. So thank you, thanks a lot for that, and um, we will see how Europe rises to the challenge that you set it of actually trying to build the technical knowledge to to protect a, a liberal order against all of these different conceptual challenges as well as some of the other actors that are maybe less liberal thank you thanks for listening to this podcast if you've enjoyed it please do tell people about it through social media and even more importantly write a review of the podcast on itunes in order to encourage you to do this we have decided to create a special commemorative mug for the End of the World series. And if you write a review, we will, even if it's bad, we will send you an End of the World mug to your address. So please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu with a link to your review and an address to send the mug to, and you will have something which will make you the envy of your family and friends and will hopefully enjoy thinking about the podcast uh, every time you have a coffee in the morning. We would like to thank the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs for kindly supporting the research that went into this podcast. Mm -hmm.